Hello, and welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson, and I'm your host. And I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spidermarks, and Peter Chur. Today, we're going to be talking about the Ukraine. Ukraine has gone through a significant change since 2014. It's had its revolution then, and then there was the annexation of Crimea by Russia soon after that. Recently, there's been discussion of Ukraine actually joining NATO. We are very fortunate to have Major General Spider Marks here to share his perspective on the topic. We also have Peter Chur, who recently wrote a piece comparing LIBOR bonds to SOFR bonds well-received by our friends and clients, and we're excited to have him on the podcast today to share his perspective on that. But first, we're going to focus on Ukraine, so I'm going to turn it over to Rachel. Sir, we focused on our national security strategy multiple episodes, and that, of course, includes Russia and China. Even though it hasn't been getting a ton of attention, with Russia more or less invading Europe from the south and the eastern part of Ukraine, you know, there have been more than 10,000 deaths, many of them civilian. That's the highest death toll in Europe since the war in the Balkans. And there's not a ton of focus on it. So I think this is a really good opportunity to get some of your thoughts on what's happening in Ukraine, and especially as it pertains to our strategy with Russia. You know, that's a really good point, Rachel. Thanks very much. Yeah, the the United States is diverted in a number of ways. And clearly, this administration right now is in the midst of, as we all know, domestically, a large investigation and uh, an enormous amount of discourse on how the United States wants to engage with both Russia and China. Um, What happened in Ukraine is significant for us to discuss in light of what you've described is that Russian invasion of Europe from the south, which clearly is taking place. So let me Let me talk about what I think is important in the Ukraine today. Um, And in order to do that, let me run the clock back a little bit, give a little bit of historical perspective and take you back to 2014. You know, in in February of 2014, between the 18th and 23rd of February, uh, Ukraine underwent a revolution. Um, The president Yanukovych was ousted. Uh, It was a domestic uprising. Um, Military forces were used. The government was toppled. The old constitution was put back in place. Yanukovych departed, ended up in Russia, no surprise. Then in June of that year, Poroshenko was voted in as the president, and he remains today the president of Ukraine. Uh, Let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, on the heels of what was called the Maidan Revolution in February that ousted Yanukovych and replaced him with with a new government is... Russia invaded and annexed Crimea over the course of the month of March 2014. They invaded very elegantly, if you will, very softly by way of special operations forces crossing the border in civilian clothes, and then upon command took over the elements of governance within Crimea, annexed it, and then had what I would call a sham vote to indicate that it was popularly supported, and Crimea now belongs to Russia. And that took place in March. So you had these two very significant events that took place in February through March of 2014 that puts us where we are today in terms of our view and what exists within Crimea. 
Now, bear in mind that clearly the importance of Crimea is Russian transiting oil and gas exports through the Ukraine and feeding all of Southern Europe and the rest of the European Union. That's the the true focus that we have and why we are focusing in on and embracing Ukraine as I think should be a priority. And I think there are efforts that are ongoing within our government to ensure that it remains a priority, yet it receives very little, to your point, Rachel, very little focus from the media and um, not enough of discourse, I think. Um, So I think what really needs to be embraced now is what do we think, what do we, the international community, hopefully led by the United States in a, in a leadership position, both in terms of thought leadership and in terms of our ability to affect actions on the ground, what do we think the Ukraine wants out of all of this? And, and I would say, frankly, um, the government in Ukraine, are be, that, that government is better off if it is independent, neutral, and remains a bridge between challenges both to the East and to the West. As we've stated, I think, several times before, it wouldn't be to the Ukraine's advantage to be a part of NATO. I think that's kind of the conventional wisdom. I would agree that Ukraine is better off if it remains a, quote, Switzerland of the East, close quote, and remains or at least advances itself and positions itself as a broker between both East and West. The only way you can do that is if you remain independent, and I think that's the best course for Ukraine going forward. Let me also now provide what I think is Russia's view of all of this. Russia, as as you know, um, has always been in a position where they are most comfortable this, this predates the Soviet Union. This goes back to Tsarist Russia. It is most comfortable when it is kicking up dust and causing problems on its near abroad. Clearly, the objective there is to get folks to focus in on those challenges on their borders so that they don't pay much time and attention to what's taking place inside Russia. That has always taken place. Yet, And Russia rightfully feels that they need to do that because if you, again, look at its history back in the 1800s, they were invaded by France. In the 19th century, they were invaded by Germany. So they've been plundered by forces outside that clearly only wanted to take advantage of Russia's access to really two things. One is oil and gas, and the other is agricultural land. Russia has never been known for its industrial capacity. It has been known clearly for its literature and its art. And It's got incredible agricultural capacity as well. So all external powers that have ever had interest in Russia have been because of its immense space, its immense vastness, and the ability to grow and expand within Russia. As a result of that, Russia has legitimately always been concerned about its borders. Over the course of the past, what I would say really is 30 years, look what Russia's been confronted with. NATO was formed in 1949, and originally there were 12 members, but over the course of the last 30 years, 12 members have essentially grown into 29 members. 
So what was the U.S. policy of containment of the Soviet Union for just short of 50 years has been replaced by the expansion of NATO. So from Moscow's perspective, from Putin's perspective, this is containment by other means. Um, He feels oppressed. He feels like he needs to kick up dust on his near abroad so that he's not being threatened. And that's what he did with Crimea. So from the Russian perspective, it makes perfect sense what they did. Clearly what they did, however, violated international law, uh, was a form of global theft, it was brutality, it was illegal, and no one has been punished as a result of those actions. But from their perspective, I think we can all understand why they would move down this path. Now, from the U.S. perspective, let's take a deeper look at this as well. The Ukrainian Revolution in 2014 could not have taken place and did not occur, could not have occurred, until the United States raised a hand and said, we're here to support. So the United States is clearly complicit as an advocate and, frankly, as a partner in the Ukrainian Revolution that ousted Yanukovych and then was replaced with a system that now reflects where they are today. So the United States fingerprints are all over where we are right now. Um, what happened in Crimea probably could have been anticipated, but clearly it was not. So the United States view is that we've got Russia that's meddling in the Ukraine by way of the annexation of Crimea. Oil and gas, Russian oil and gas transits the Ukraine in very significant ways and keeps the EU and many of our allies and partners, the United States allies and partners, available to do what it is they need to do economically by way of their access and dependence on Russian oil and gas. So again, from the, from the U.S. perspective and from the current administration's perspective, we have stated and our president has stated all along that he wants to improve our relations with Russia. Now, whether we would agree with how he has gone about it, whether we would think that, the, that we might think that the timing is inappropriate since we're in the midst of an investigation on, quote, Russian collusion, close quote, in our past elections, whether we want to get into that discussion, I would suggest that all of that is on the table and needs to be a part of the discussion that we're having and needs to be recognized and accounted for. But there are opportunities for the United States to engage with Russia and Ukraine in its role as a potential bridge between East and West could facilitate that. There are voices, there are dissenting voices in the Ukraine that have raised their hands and have said, we can help. We have relationships with Russia, we have relationships with the EU, and we have relationships with the West, and we'd like to be able to be in a position to facilitate that. When you look at the Ukrainian government, clearly the Ukrainian government is not squeaky clean by any stretch of the imagination. It would, could easily be described as a kleptocracy. Yet there are, as I've indicated, dissenting voices that I would describe as patriots within the Ukraine that would have the credibility both with Moscow and with Washington and would have a voice that could be advantaged so that the United States could, in fact, improve its relationships with Russia and do it in a way that has 
advocacy and maybe a little more heft to it that broadens the appeal both in Europe and in further in the East with Russia. And the United States would, would uh, clearly be in a better position if they were able to take advantage of what I call this track two diplomacy. In other words, not necessarily maintaining an exclusive access or initiative or building a strategy through formal overt diplomatic means, but doing that, but also simultaneously and in parallel taking a track two approach where we have other voices and through representations can go forward and can carry the water in terms of what's best for national security in the United States and national security in Russia, and the Ukraine would benefit from all of that. Again, Ukraine in a position of achieving its independence, maintaining its independence and its neutrality could truly be a voice that could be used to our great advantage. Oil and gas is smack dab in the middle of this, and the real winner, if we could do this, would be the United States and its oil and gas capabilities and our ability to export into the EU, keeping Russia at bay because of the neutrality of Ukraine having a voice that's credible both in Moscow and Washington. Sir, you discuss how important the potential for Ukraine to be this neutral broker between Europe, the West, and Russia, how important that capability is. But how do we reconcile the current U.S. policy of providing military equipment to aid Ukraine to fight Russian-backed forces with what maybe is a more strategic vision of Ukraine potentially being more or less Switzerland? Yeah, that's a great question. But, you know, what we see right now is a confluence of interest between the United States and Ukraine to provide the government in Kiev sufficient support so it can sustain itself and then ultimately be in a position to establish what I would call a a real position and a real policy of neutrality. So at this point, we are not necessarily picking sides, but what we are trying to do is give Ukrainian forces an opportunity to achieve success on the ground. And then after there's been some form of either established stalemate, some form of a peace, some interregnum between the conflicts, Then you can choose how Kiev wants to advance forward. And it would not be, uh, you know, surprising for the United States to say, we're out of here. We wanted to make sure you could live to fight another day. We're now going to withdraw our support. Clearly, we would have a long-term interest to remain, I'm putting that in air quotes, to remain in some capacity. And that certainly is diplomatic. That could be economic. Our military support would be their choice to engage with us and to buy kit, to buy buy training, to buy buy capacity from the United States. So in my mind, you can do both. Ukraine can achieve a level of survivability and the ability to make a choice in terms of its independence going forward, yet can receive support from the United States in the near term to ensure that they're in a position to make that decision. Thank you, Rachel and Major General Spidermarks, so much for that. And now I'm going to shift the conversation over to Peter. Peter recently wrote the piece regarding LIBOR versus SOFR bonds. 
Peter, can you tell us why is this important and could you share your perspective on silver bonds with us? One interesting development that we're watching closely in the shorter dated bond market has been bonds linked to the securitized overnight financing rate or SOFR. That is the rate that the Fed really wants to replace LIBOR with. Fannie made it a deal late in July of just over $6 billion, and then MetLife did a billion-dollar deal at the end of August. So this is really something to watch. There's been a lot of talk about LIBOR being phased out. The Fed clearly does not want LIBOR to be the benchmark rate. And SOFR was launched officially in March as a rate for people to reference. And these are the first deals. I expect a lot more deals to come out linked to the Securitized Overnight Financing Rate or SOFR. And that should be really interesting. People are having some difficult trying to deal with this because unlike LIBOR, you don't know what your coupon is because it accrues each day. So you don't know until the end of the period. So there's some accounting issues. There's a lot of interesting things going around this. But with the agencies, MetLife, and I expect the banks to come out with a bunch of paper linked to it, you should see development of that market. And it's the first real threat to LIBOR that we've seen. At the same time, ICE, which now controls LIBOR, is working very hard to make it a market-relevant rate and to keep it. There's a lot of you know contracts based off of that go well beyond the 2021 cutoff. So it's going to be an interesting battle to play out. I think you know LIBOR has a lot going for it, but this should really up the ante for both ICE and it'll be interesting to see how these things develop. From an investor side, I think right now, issuers are probably paying a little bit too much to get this paper done because they want to develop that market, particularly the banks who have the Fed support to develop that market. So something to keep an eye out. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. And our listeners, you can access any of Peter's written commentary by going to academysecurities.com slash macro. And furthermore, if you would like to engage our geopolitical or macro strategy experts directly, you can email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you next week.